where this topic came from is I was actually listening to a podcast about the Benedictine rule, and it occurred to me that how practical everything that he was talking about was for modern life, that just about all of it applied with a little bit of thinking about it to modern situations in modern life. And so then the question came up, well, how to um, organize the, the classes, and which I'll come back to in a second because Father Newman came up with a good idea for that. But um, to go back and explain what the Benedictine rule is for anyone that might not know. Sorry about the JT whiteboard. I like whiteboards. But um, that St. Benedict, who's the patron saint of Europe and one of the, the forefathers of the Western Church, is the, considered the, the father of Western monasticism, too, is one of the most important figures in the entire history of the Catholic Church. And he lived, I know the start date, 480, and I think he died around 440-something. Um, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Maybe four? Yeah, I don't know. Um, and so what's going on at this time is in the four, I think it was 454 is when the Visigoths officially took over Italy and you had the, because what's usually considered the final date of the Western Roman Empire. So this is, so this, think about this, is right at the end of the Roman Empire in the West, the Germanic Visigoths have taken over Italy and actually in the five, I think it's around 520, 530, you actually had the start of the, I was going to say, sometimes because you're World War Point one, not World War One, and that in the Germanic Visigoths had taken over Italy and that the Roman Empire still existed in the east in Constantinople and the Emperor Justinian decided, hey, um, let's reconquer the west and re bring back together the Roman Empire. And so you ended up with this giant war that raged all across Italy, the, the Byzantine Gothic War that just left Italy this total wasteland in 520. So it's interesting that God gives Benedict at this exact time that he can help with what he establishes, helps save um, especially Italy, but a lot of the Western Europe after that war has left the wasteland. Because it's also interesting that people usually think of, well, the Germanic tribes come in and they're bunches of barbarians and that's sort of what destroys Western Europe. Um, but it's not. It's actually the because when they even moved in, that they had been, for the most part, living in the Roman Empire, those Goths for hundreds of years. They all spoke Latin. They dressed like Romans and everything. But it's that war between the Byzantines and them that just leaves everything a wasteland. Um, so that's sort of what's going on at this time. Contemporaries, um, the big one would be Greg, Saint Greg, Pope St. Gregory the Great, who was the Pope at that time. And um, Gregorian chant came from then. There was some good stuff going on despite the, the chaos. Now, Benedict, just long and short, is like a lot of saints, he wanted to go and focus more of his time in silence and prayer. And so he was born in, I was going to say, he's called Benedict of Nursia, which is the anglicized uh, form of the town of Norcia 
in Italy. So Nursia, but the actual Italian town is Norcia. And he had a twin sister, who's Saint Scholastica, who they, um, she's going to sort of become like the mother of Western um, female monasticism. And anyway, he went to go be by himself, like a lot of saints do. They always seem to find caves. And, but like, I don't know, does Europe just have a lot of caves? Like, I don't even know where if in America you would go and find caves other than maybe like the Southwest. But they, um, he goes, he finds caves, and what happens is other young men who want to do the same thing, that when there's someone that's particularly holy, they always seem to like flock to them and say, hey, I want to do this too. And what happens going from being trying to be by yourself to, hey, here's a bunch of other guys that want to do the same thing. So you need to figure out how to live the common life in a way that is um, holy. And what Benedict did was very different than Eastern monasticism because monasticism had existed in the East for a long time. And in the East, it was, for the most part, pretty radical in that they think of like the Desert Fathers that, well, here's a guy that goes and lives out in the desert by himself, like think St. Anthony of Egypt, who they ended up having the same problem of people would flock to them too. But they in the East, they would come up with this, these more and more austere um, solutions, like St. Simon the Stylite, who went and like lived on a pole for like 30 years because to try to get away from everybody. And instead of doing that, Benedict realized that, hey, not everybody can be St. Simon the Stylite, but we all need to try to get to heaven. So how do we come up with a method for that anybody can do? not just that person that's been given that extraordinary grace to go live on that pole, I guess. Um, so that's where he came up with the Benedictine rule, which is one of the most foundational works written in the history of Catholicism. And it's basically, he took the whole concept of a military rule from the Romans, and it's like, here's the practical stuff that you do. And then he took a few... Um, writers that were really sort of foundational for him. The big one was St. John Cashin. And he came up with like, all right, well, here's like the practical steps for a monastery, a community of how it should be run, how the abbot in charge should be selected, what he should do, how he should, I mean, it's very, very practical in its steps. And he called it a rule for beginners. Um, meaning that the idea was, hey, anybody can do this. You don't have to be some extraordinary saint to be able to do this and use it as a means of getting to heaven. Um, and the reason, and since it's so practical, is why it applies so much to um, lay life too, not just the monastic life. Because obviously, none of us in here live in a monastery or going to be living in a monastery. At least, probably not. I wouldn't think. Um, but any questions so far? So that's the primer. All right. Now, the way that Father Newman suggested that to organize the class, which I actually thought was pretty good, was since there's four weeks, he said, divide it up geographically on the different parts of the monastery. And I actually thought this was a great idea. So that's what we're going to do. And so the first class right now, what we're going to do briefly is talk about I mean, basically, we have to mentally sort of pretend we're someone entering a monastery for the next four weeks. So the first class, go through the discernment process for entering, 
which the rules for it apply very much to any decision-making that we are. Because in the church, we always talk about discernment when talking about vocation. In the big picture, like, I'm supposed to be a priest, a nun, a, uh, a layperson, etc., that those same general rules that apply to that decision-making apply to every aspect of decision-making. And then we'll start with, I, I guess, the, for lack of a better term, we'll just say the cloister, where everybody is. Um, so for some of the general principles. And then next week, we can talk about the church. Then the third week, we'll talk about the library. And then the fourth week, the refectory, or the kitchens and dining room. So that'll be the most practical one. And you can hear all my really opinionated um, ideas about food. So anyway... Um, which I like too much. All right. So, and like I said, feel free to interrupt with anything at any point that you think of something, etc. So let's talk about then the discernment process. And the first thing to remember with the discernment process, making important decisions, that there's two aspects. There's the exterior aspects and then there's an interior aspect. And the church is always sort of really practical on all of this. And Benedict was very practical about this and that you always start with the exterior. And the meaning, the exterior is what are the things that don't involve you having to sort of like search your heart and learn and listen to God's will, etc. but rather like, well, what are your exterior obligations? Start there. Um, so, and also what is the exterior advice you're getting, the exterior situation, that specific situation that God has put you in, that in other ways of putting exterior is the really concrete side. And actually I remember um, the first time this sort of being explained to me was I was in a grad school program at Clemson 15 years ago. I was trying to decide, hey, do I stay in this program that I don't really care about? Do I do something else, etc.? And I remember, um, I was going to say, if I knew better now, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do it. But I remember actually asking Father Newman advice and confession, which he does, is not famous for giving. Um, and... Um, and anyway, he pointed out a very practical thing. He's like, well, what you do is it's practical and simple decision-making 101. He's like, start with your obligations, and then from there, move on to your gifts, and then from there, your desires. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's why didn't someone tell me this 30 years ago? Um, but I guess I wasn't around 30 years ago at that time. But all the same. So with the exterior, start with the obligations, meaning if you're entering into the monastery, they're not going to let you in if you have a bunch of student debt, for instance, in a modern sense. Um, if you, in this sense at the time of um, St. Benedict, if you have family obligations, you're supposed to have to be take care of like an aging relative. They're not going to say, hey, dump the relative in um, the, the, the Nursia home. No, I guess the, um, in the nursing home, and come and join that your god puts very specific obligations in front of you and so the simple place of knowing um what you're supposed to do is fulfill your obligations and that's why actually the 
Well, he creates the rule for beginners that the even bigger rule for beginners is actually the married life because 95% of the married life is simply fulfilling your obligations. Um, when you have to wake up, it's not that you have to force yourself out of bed at three in the morning to pray. It's because there's a kid barfing at three in the morning. And so you have to get out of bed whether you want to or not. And it sort of takes that, that act of the will out and just sort of forces you to do it. Um, so fulfilling your obligations. And another main part, though, that we forget about with the exterior is the concrete situation aspect too that it's you may you may have fulfilled your obligations but past that the fact is that god puts you in actually different concrete situations that actually affect the choices you are able to make um so i mean this is something that as modern americans we very much struggle against particularly with when we tell like every kid like oh you can be president um you could be an astronaut and the answer is like no sometimes you can't um that sometimes god doesn't put you in the situation to be an astronaut or the president and that's okay so likewise even in the church nowadays that one of the backwards things that we do is we talk about when we talk about discernment and in particular with vocations that there's always like the the person that gets up and talks about well um, vocation to the married life or vocation to the religious life, etc. When there's not an actual vocation to the married life or the religious life. It, meaning what there is, is the vocation to marry a specific person at that time. God doesn't go to you and say like, hey, you have the, you're called to this abstract concept of marriage. It's like, no, has he actually provided you with a potential spouse that you're called to love and to try to help get to heaven. Um, and likewise with the religious life that you, this happens all the time, particularly with young people that are discerning the religious life that they are like, well, here's the abstract idea of entering a religious community or becoming a priest. When the church has always said, no, you don't start with the abstract idea, start with a specific community. Um, like our, and this is actually an important thing about the Benedictine rule is we tend to think of religious orders over the last 200 years as all being the Jesuits, meaning the Jesuits are organized like the army, that they have this hierarchical structure where you've got the superior general, and then under them is going forth and so forth and so on in this highly organized um, sort of army um, structure or air force. No, just kidding. Um, and the, when Benedict though, what he started was highly disorganized, meaning it was highly organized in the individual community, but there's no such thing in a true sense as the Benedictine order. What it is, is it's a sort of a very loose collaboration of individual communities, of individual monasteries. And some of them will sort of team together um, for a sort of mutual support, but into what are called congregations. But for the most part, they're individual monasteries, very decentralized. And, um, and so when you're, one doesn't join the Benedictine order like you would the Jesuits and be like, well, I could be sent to uh, New Orleans or I could be sent to Maine or anything like that. It's no, I am joining a very specific community that is full of very specific people 
Um, and a large portion of what I am doing is making a vow to be a part of that community. Um, and so that's part of the, that practical side is when making the decision-making, in, in particular with vocations, that the first thing people should always do is if someone, if you ever talk to somebody who's interested in becoming a, a nun, a monk, or um, even a priest, is like, well, have you tried it out? Like, be practical about it. Like, go and visit an actual community, see if you like the people there, and if you think you could actually be happy um, living out the life there. Or there's amazing how many people that if you someone thinks they're called to be a priest, apply to seminary and try it out. You don't, there's not, there's a reason it's a four-year process is you don't have to make the decision immediately. Um, you think you're called to the married life, well, are you actually dating somebody? Um, have, or there's this abstract idea of this person that maybe God will put in front of you, etc. Um, so anyway, it's very concrete, the, starting with the exterior. Does anyone have anything they wanted to add to that or... Yeah, John. Not, not a uh, not an addition, a, a clarification. So I'm trying to understand what you're meaning. <clears throat> so, are you saying in this that when we are in a discernment uh, process, that we look at ourselves and our own skills and capabilities and desires and see if they fit into the practical, concrete reality? Of what has been the actual choice that's been presented yeah. yeah no exactly which is the transition from the exterior into the interior so you have to start with the concrete reality of what your actual choice is i mean if you're doing it in as practical way of saying as you can in that you have a choice is usually presented to you as i guess there's sort of three things either a good thing and a bad thing and then it becomes a lot easier or when it becomes difficult is choosing between two good things. But the key there is start with, well, what's the actual choice presented to you? Um, because not everyone actually has choices. Like I, it's not a choice for me to go play in the NBA. Um, so that's not something I in reality have to discern. Though it, I could imagine um, you could have a situation where someone is totally self-deluded, where they would sit around like, man, I really just need to decide. I'm gonna spend a few days thinking about this on whether that's really if I want to go play in the NBA or not. Um, well, that's kind of a useless starting point. So, yes, and then that goes into the interior. And so that second part of, well, knowing your gifts is the concrete side of the interior. So just like you have the exterior, which is fully concrete, within the interior, there's sort of the concrete side, and then there's the listening to God's will side. And starting with the concrete side, it goes back to the, um, was it Plato, the, the phrase, know thyself? Man, you got to start there. Um, that is amazing how little the average person knows themselves. And part of this is a result of original sin that if original sin severs our relationship with God and then thus damages all of our other relationships and darkens our intellect. Well, when we know ourselves and think about ourselves, like we have a very darkened view of ourselves that's not very clear. 
But most people never bother to actually engage their intellect to their own gifts. And there's an exterior aspect to this too, because a great way of knowing thyself is listening to what others on the outside see and getting um, advice from others that, from the practical side. And actually, one last thing about the exteriors, you really see that too in entering the monastery is you can't just choose to enter. They have to actually accept you. Um, so there is an exterior. Well, if they say no, too bad. That, And the other thing they will often, they will always do too, and Benedict recommends this, is just to make sure that it's not a, a, a momentary thing where you're like, well, my emotions right now are telling me this. They want to make sure that you actually know yourself well enough, decently well, so they'll always say no for like three times. And then usually it's only on like the fourth time you ask that they actually let you in to, to try to force you to slow down and stop and know yourself. And, um, and so, like I said, knowing yourself, it starts with the intellect and the biggest obstacle to this in modern times is merely the lack of silence. And this is actually a key thing that ties in to get a little ahead of ourselves when you actually enter into the monastery and into the part of the cloister we're talking about is the whole concept of silence being key to the monastery um but which i'll come back to in a, so a little head but a little bit right now but so you have to start a little bit with the silence in order to be able to enter into the bigger silence and the and what do we mean by silence and actually a great book for understanding this is cardinal sarah's Book, the Power of Silence, that came out a couple years ago. It's a little too long, I will say, in that I think he could have written it in half the space. But that being said, it's a good book. It's not that long. It's only like that big. But I think most books are 10 times longer than they need to be, though. So, um, but what I mean by silence is there is, um, I remember... Actually, I think it might have been, so I did when I end, became a Catholic in 2004 that I did my first confession actually at a Benedictine monastery in Chicago. And I think it was then talking with the priest at the first confession that he talked about that one of the things that they teach the young monks at the same sort of going together at the same time are custody of the mouth and custody of the eyes. And as, as part of the rule of silence. So silence of the mouth, silence of the eyes. And what he talked about was, he said, for instance, he said, we'll teach them that like when in doubt, just don't talk. And he's like, and also when in doubt, just look ahead. So he's, and he's like, so for instance, he's like, we teach them that they're walking down the hallway. They walk down, there's something interesting going in the room. Like try to restrain yourself from turning to see what's going on in the room. And the reason why is trying to build this interior silence rather than exterior noise. Um, and, or another way is trying to avoid like interior distraction um, is a good way of putting it. And the funny thing is when you read the Benedictine rule that it's kind of funny to, when you stop and think about it, like when he's talking about the need for silence, for silence, for silence, that 
there wasn't a lot of noise back in 480. Um, that when you like, there's, I mean, he's living in a town with like a hundred people um, out on the outskirts of town. There's no cars. There's no airplanes going overhead. That it was a pretty quiet time. Um, and and actually, if you've ever um, hiked in the redwoods or the sequoia giant sequoias in California, that one of the amazing things is how utterly silent it is because the fact the trees are so tall that all of the birds and everything are like 200 feet up in the air, so you can't hear any of that. And that's another thing to think about at that time is all of the trees in Europe were like that at that time too. Like it was basic, like they've chopped down all of the trees and they've regrown since then that it would have been even more silent than it was now. And yet he keeps coming back to silent, silent, silence. And, I mean, so it is a lot harder now when you have the distraction. When I think of the custody of the eyes, I'm like, oh, uh, I'm sitting silently for a second. Like, this is uncomfortable. Let me get out my phone and check it, something. And when it, this ties in that together, that point of what we're trying, he's trying to do is it's avoiding, first and foremost, that utter distraction of, well, I have to fill the silence with talking. I have to fill the silence with something that keeps my eyes interested. Um, the, the phrase that was always talking about, like keeping, having to keep your eyes occupied all the time is curiositas, is the la like curiosity. So it's like, oh man, I'm sitting in silence for two seconds. Let me uh, check uh, Fox News. Gotta see what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, oh, it's that it's this constantly like have to keep your brain stimulated so you can't just sit and be silent. And the thing is, unless it's always those moments when you actually have them, that when you're silent, that you come up with your best, most profound thoughts where you actually like th think of things. I mean, I think I come up with like 90% of my to-do list while taking a shower because it's like, oh, there's nothing else to listen to. Like, and things pop in your head or I'll prepare I teach RCIA on Wednesday nights and I'll spend time preparing, things like that. And I never think of anything particularly interesting to say until, actually it's even questionable whether it's interesting then, but until usually it's the drive in silence, you're like, oh man, I spent all week trying to think of something and now like all the ideas start popping in your head when you're actually silent. Um, and actually there was a good quote by Pascal and I'll butcher it, but it's something like, that all the world's problems are caused by man's inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. So, I have a question. Yeah. What about, though, that when your brain is so active and you've got all this stuff going on in your head and some of it obviously isn't um, necessarily constructive. So, you know, that's a silence that's hard. You know what I mean? Like your oh, yeah. thoughts can just... Be silent longer. That's usually the... Um, <laughs> that sometimes even being silent takes a long time to get through... I mean, I have struggled with that, especially right now, because I'm doing a lot of remodeling at home. And when I'm silent, I usually start thinking like, well, if I wire this circuit, it goes to this one and this one, and you go over the entire like wiring of the room 10 times in your head. And then you're like, wait a second, that's not. So even that it's um, difficult. But if you're gonna actually think, use your intellect, think about yourself in a good sense of knowing like, hey, do this, don't do that then um, you have to start with silence. Now, a good practical guide for this aspect right here of knowing thyself and then how it ties into listening to God's will is um, 
St. Ignatius of Loyola, who wrote his Rules for Discernment on the specific thing, and he actually did so while living at a Benedictine monastery before he started the, the Jesuits. And what he does is he has a lot of very practical um, steps where for knowing yourself and then also knowing God's will, where he goes through things like, well, one practical thing for knowing yourself is knowing that at all we all go through two different times that it sort of fluctuates all the time, two different aspects. He calls them times of like consolation and times of desolation. Like there's times where things feel, feel really good and you're really like enthusiastic on the spiritual life and everything. And then there's times where you're just kind of miserable and you have to sort of struggle along. And so one of the th practical things he points out is the consolation time always comes from God and the desolation never does. Um, and that as such... When you make a res resolution during a time of consolation, never give it up during the time of desolation. So um, so starts with using the intellect in a very practical way during this time. And then he actually goes, so that's discerning, like I said, between good things and bad things. And then he has a second part, he calls them for like the second day of discernment, which is discerning between competing goods. Uh, but using following practical rules. So there's a good um, series on this by um, Father Timothy Gallagher. Um, and he's a good podcast. He's a good book, but then a good podcast series where he goes through, well, what are these concrete rules? It's called Discerning Hearts. Um, they've, anyway, recommend it. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Just, uh Something that, uh, you know, when you talk about silence, um, a practical thing for us when, when I was um, hiking with the uh, Make-A-Wish, you know, we did that 28-mile hike in one day, and I remember one of the young uh, lady's comments was she feared, the thing she feared most was being with her own thoughts for that long of a time. Um, and we have, I think that's one of our problems in the modern day life, that we really have that fear for being with our own thoughts. And the practical, and you touched on this a little bit, is when we get into our cars and we drive, often the first thing we do is we turn on the radio. And we don't have silence because we don't allow ourselves silence. So if you're going jogging or something like that, or you want hiking, leave the earbuds in the car. Get in the car, don't turn the radio on. And you know, to Anne's point about the monkey brain, um, it takes practice. You know, the monkey brain will never, it's never go away. But with practice, you know, it gets a little quieter. There's a great video clip on the same thing, too. The, the card made me think of it. Um, but it was a, from a Conan O'Brien interview. I don't remember how many years back, but the comedian Louis C.K. before his fall from grace. And he was talking about, he's like, there's a, he's like, a couple weeks ago. Actually, he was talking about why he um, won't let his kids have cell phones. 
Um, but then he was talking about a couple weeks before he said I was driving and my radio was broken. And then all of a sudden he's like, that giant chasm started coming at me of the silence. And he's like, you know what I'm talking about? And Conan O'Brien's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, and it just came and smacked me in the face. And it was like, yeah, like if you don't ever have silence, even like thinking about that eternal aspect of like, wait, that this is all fleeting. Um, what it's all about, where that you're not going to be able to have any of um, that. So, which when you're making huge decisions, you kind of have to start there. I mean, and even thinking from the practical sense too, that I just think about like all of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life, that you have to have really huge chunks of silence. And the, it's, so this is why the importance of going on retreats um, is important in the Catholic Church, but also like retreats that aren't just um, noise being thrown at you. I remember going on one once and it drove me crazy because they had this big period of adoration at the end. But instead of just letting everyone be silent during adoration, they had someone playing a guitar or something. I'm like, no, like it needs to be silent. I mean, and if you, and there's, it's practically very difficult to do, but every once in a while, there's nothing better than going to adoration for a multi-hour period. Because after around an hour, you can only pray so many rosaries and like everything. And then you're like, now what? Now what? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it's, yeah, very important, very difficult. Um, and it's usually at those moments that once you've done the exterior, once you've engaged the intellect and that you actually finally get to the point where God makes his will really known to you through just clarity, um, clarity in your conscience, that the, the properly formed conscience, that when all the practical steps are done, like God provides extreme clarity. Because here's the deal, is God doesn't want to trick us. Like he wants every one of us to know, hey, this is what I want you to do. Um, he doesn't make it easy. Um, like you have to put in a little bit of effort, but he's not trying to trick anybody. And there's also, this is the other key part too, is um, I wish, especially with everyone sort of 35 and under, rec that would recognize, especially in the church, it's also okay if you don't make the perfect decision. Like, that is okay, too. Because the way God's will works, it's not... When I say it's very concrete, God wants you to marry this one specific person. Enter this community. That God's will is not, here is the specific path for you. And unless you follow that exact specific path, you're going to be miserable. And God's will is not going to happen. So if you go over here, God's will happens. If you go over here, it doesn't is it's actually like this constantly moving thing because of that great mystery of divine providence and free will at the same time. So, yes, God has, like, I guess there is, in one sense, if we followed a specific path in all of our choices, we'd probably be the happiest we possibly could be. But if, the, if but we understand happiness in the proper mm -hmm. sense of getting to be to heaven, that earthly happiness is not really the whole point at all. So there's multiple ways that God will, if you, you make the wrong, like a wrong turn here, he will come up with a new path that you can use to get to heaven. 
Like, it's not like, well, you missed the path, you're not getting to heaven. So it's, well, nope, here's another one. So you missed the main road, but here's a side road over here. You can take this one. It might be a little harder. You might have to go over an extra hill, but it still gets there. Oh, wait, you went down this little path. Now you have to go through a couple of ditches, but you can still possibly get there. Uh, that, so there's also like the, the fear of making wrong decisions is usually the, I would say, is the number one problem that um, most people under the age of, actually, we'll go under the age of 40 have right now, is they're like paralyzed by fear of wrong, of wrong choices. Um, when, you know what? Um, sometimes making a wrong choice isn't the end of the world. It's not a big deal. And it's better to make a choice than just to always have decision paralysis. So um, you enter the community. Now, another... Um, not because I'm just looking at the clock, not wanting to spend the entire time on the discernment process. So the young monk has finally made it into the monastery. Um, he discerned through the practical sense. He had no obligations. He had paid off the family debts. He, uh, he had knocked on the door enough times. They finally let him in. And one of the, um, vows that Benedictines make that's important is that of stability that goes when I say the with specific community that it's important that Benedictines that they can't go jump from monastery to monastery they make a vow like I'm going to stay in this one monastery and you I mean you see the number one place you see that um, transfer into the lay life is in I mean that's central to the whole concept of marriage it's well um, like this is, you can't like, I'm tired of this family. I'm going to go find another one. Um, I have an uncle, actually I don't want to say I was recording that, so I won't get into my uncle, but, um, the, um, actually not that I think you'd be listening anyway, but that's okay. Um, you can't say, Hey, like I'm tired of this family. Let's go get another one. Ah, this one's getting a little old. Let's go get another one. It's like, nope, thick or thin, like we're sticking together. Um, that, and that's the biggest place where you'd see stability transitioning over into the lay life. But I do think that in a bigger sense that we have really lost a concept of stability in the modern world in that the idea of actually staying geographically in one area um, has totally died. Um, I say that looking at Tony, who's from Easley, so I guess some people do. But I was born in California, grew up in Arizona, went to school in Michigan, and now live in South Carolina. That that's how most people's lives are nowadays. But the idea of like, oh, you try to live near your family, try to like, um, has sort of totally died. And those are actually very important um, concepts in that you can't um, learn to love your family better unless you're actually around them. Um, you can't, it's, I mean, it's always the old adage, well, it's easy to love my family when they're on the other side of the country. It's like, yeah, but you're not really doing so. That you have to live near them in order to actually be able to fulfill your primary obligation to love them. Um, the, the idea of, um, I mean, this isn't, you can't have true love, quote unquote, for material things, but I think, how 
all these ideas nowadays of taking like the concrete um, and then we have this idea, we try to make it as abstract and universal as possible, um, particularly with virtues. So it's like, well, instead of like love being fulfilling your obligations in this concrete way, starting in these concentric circles of here's your immediate family, then your relationships that God has like put you in, like your church, your community, your neighbors. Like we start the opposite direction. You like you love humanity and then are a complete jerk to your brother. Um, and then likewise, I was gonna say, I think of environmentalism. It's like, I love the environment. It's like, well, there's no such thing as the environment in the abstract. It's like, do you love an actual place? Like the actual virtue is, there's a Greek term for it, um, which I don't remember. One of those philias, something Ophelia, um, that it, it translates as the love of the hearth is what the true virtue is, meaning that it's the love of like the local place where God has actually put you, which you can see it actually going with like the whole idea of honoring your father and mother. It's like God has put you in a specific relationship. He's put you in a specific location and you're called therefore to love and be a steward of that relationship and of that place where God's actually put you. Um, so it's, you don't have to, I was going to say like repair the, the ozone hole over Australia. You need to actually clean up the trash that's on your street. Start there. Um, call Mike to come and do some of your recycling. All right. So anyway, um, stability is important and I am going to cut myself off for the allow 10 minutes of questions because the next things I was going to talk about, which I was working to next week into the church, um, are materialism, like so the, uh, the Benedictine idea of poverty, because it's interesting. They do not take oaths of poverty in the way that like a Franciscan or Dominican does, but Benedict has very specific views. Um, yeah, you know what? We'll get into it. I'll... Less, yeah. So, you're talking about these other orders. Was Benedict the first? He's the first. And so, the Benedict, so the Dominicans, they don't come around for uh, 700 years after this. Same with the Franciscans. Um, and that every monk until around 1000 is a Benedictine. Um, Did the other orders build off? Most of them did. The, the Franciscans and the Dominicans were something radically new that, that did very differently. Um, but every type of monk before that, it all goes back to Benedict, and they all use the Benedictine rule. Um, I don't know. You could get into specific um, ones. I don't know. Yeah, I think they're much later, too. Are they earlier? I don't know. There's too many for me to keep track of. But so early on, you're talking Eastern, which was the Desert Fathers and the Cave Dwellers. And yeah. Just, they were the kind of early... In the West. Yeah. Yeah, in the West. Yes, Joe. Some of these orders constrict and get smaller. I'm wondering, is there any way that the Benedictines or other orders improve or market their order? Not the good ones. Um, the the way that they were. It's so his question was like, how do they grow? Like, how do they market? And the answer to that is, 
the universal truth of all religious orders is the more faithful they are to their vows and their rule, the more they flourish. Um, so you can usually tell how um, strict a religious order is. I mean, strict in like, do they actually follow the Benedictine rule, for instance? Or if it's Dominicans, do they actually follow, they use um, the Augustinian rule. Do they actually follow it? And you can usually tell by saying like, well, are they actually attracting new vocations? Um, meaning that when you're talking about a life of radical self-sacrifice where, all right, I'm giving up um, all of these earthly goods in order to live in that, that, that anticipation of the glory that is to come, etc. that nobody's going to do that if the monastery is not actually living out their baptismal promises and the rules as they should. There's nothing attractive about that. So the, the Benedictine monasteries that are actually doing that, they're, I mean, nowadays, there's a few of them, like they're struggling always to find places to put the new people because there's just so many constantly coming. Um, same with the, the, the sisters that, I mean, go up and visit, um, I think of the Dominicans of Mary Mother of the Eucharist in Ann Arbor, that they're constantly having to basically build like dormitory, like metals dormitories because they can't handle all the young ladies that are coming. And their average age is like 24 in their entire order. And there's hundreds of them um, because that's what people want to do. So they don't have to like go out and put out flyers. Um, yeah. I think that's that, that, that the origin of all the reform orders over the centuries. I mean, it's Sturgeon and Carthusians and, and the... Uh, yeah, and a large large portion of the reforms over the centuries was as, I mean, this is actually an interesting sort of um, historical point that we'll get into is next week is that at the heart of the Benedictine rule is the idea of or and labora, prayer and work. And it turns out when you get a bunch of really hardworking guys together and they're praying and then actually working eight hours a day while, um, praying that we all know the average person only works like two hours a day really then the rest of the time they're like searching the internet and things like that um that they get a lot done so they these monasteries became extraordinarily wealthy because all these monks is like oh we, we, here's an entire swamp let's clear the entire swamp um and fill it with flocks of sheep okay let's um and then they start getting wealthier and wealthier and they would the rule would start to fall away and you would get well a reform order would be the one that starts to say, hey, let's get back to basics of what we're trying to do from the beginning. And that's why you had the Cistercians that came around. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. But then the Cistercians started getting so wealthy that you have the Trappists. It's like, hey, let's get back to basics. Um, and it's like one after another. Um, with the Carmelites, John of the Cross, like let's go the Discalce Carmelites. Let's get back to basics. Um, so... Um, all right, looking at time. Does anyone have any last thing? We'll save the the materialism, the poverty aspect for the beginning of next week. All right, then I'm going to find closing prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life in baptism 
and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.